Big doings in Rome as nearly 200 bishops are called to meet with Pope Francis on the abuse issue in the church. Will anything come of it? Lent is right around the corner. Are you ready? And Bishop Parks, is he on injured reserve? These issues and more on this edition of A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM and the Diocese of St. Petersburg. Bishop Parks, the question, are you on injured reserve or are you uh, sidelined or are you full go? (laughs) Well, John, it's good to be with you again, and uh, that's an interesting way of putting it. (laughs) Um, I am a little bit on on IR, on injured reserve. When I first arrived here in the diocese, experienced some issues with my foot. In fact, I had to have surgery. That all healed. And everything was good, but uh, several months ago, developed another problem with my right foot. In fact, I have something on the bottom of my foot that needs to be healed. And so as a result, I've really had to limit my public schedule as far as celebrating masses at parishes, confirmations, anything that really requires me to be standing for an extended period of time. Because my doctors are telling me if I'm standing on it, it's not healing. So that's uh, what I've had to do. Now, I'm still able to come into the office every day and attend meetings and other commitments, but just as long as it doesn't involve uh, an excessive amount of standing. Sure. So the diocese is still in good hands. And, you know, the question came up to me, uh, so what if the bishop were to become hospitalized or couldn't work, who is in charge? Is that the vicar general? Yeah, so if a bishop, for some reason, unfortunately became incapacitated, maybe due to a stroke or some serious illness, where he wasn't able to continue his public ministry, I mean, not even come into the office or be engaged in any way, then normally the vicar general would be. But on a longer-term basis, you know, the bishop would be placed on a leave of absence, and a um, another bishop or somebody else in the diocese would be chosen to administer the diocese during that period. Very happy to say we're not there. Thank goodness. <laughs> and uh, I'm still able to uh, to serve as bishop, even though some of our faithful may not see me as much during the the coming weeks and months as maybe they'd be used to seeing me. A follow-up to that, some diocese, and I, and maybe this is just applicable to an archdiocese, have auxiliary bishops. Could there be an opportunity where we would get an, an auxiliary bishop, or are those just usually limited to the archdiocese? No, the auxiliary bishops are assistant bishops, for, for lack of a better way of, of explaining it. Um, they're there to assist the ordinary of the diocese or archdiocese. And uh, normally it's the ordinary, the bishop of the diocese, that would request an auxiliary bishop. Typically, the dioceses that receive those are larger dioceses than our own here in St. Petersburg. They'd be probably closer to a million Catholics. You know, we're a little bit less than half a million here. So it has to do really with the area of responsibility and the number of the faithful that you're responsible for. So it doesn't have to do with TV market size. No. (laughs) No, I don't know that there's necessarily a direct correlation there. (laughs) But uh, but typically, uh, our larger dioceses and archdioceses, which are in in the cities very often would have one or more auxiliary bishops. Yeah, I think Los Angeles had like six or seven or maybe even eight. And New York, I know, has has a, well, that whole New York region is all busted up into little dioceses as well. With yeah, Rockville the, Center and... Sure, Rockville Center has a few. Brooklyn has quite a few. I think uh, six or seven maybe. The Archdiocese of New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, mm-hmm. Chicago, all those big, big cities and all big archdioceses. Yeah, they, they would all have uh, auxiliary bishops. Speaking of bishops, the bishops are gathering in Rome. 
not all the bishops, the heads of the conferences of bishops, and we talked about that in a previous meeting. But there's close to 200 that will be in Rome to talk about the issues involving the abuse scandal that's been going on and, and investigating. Cardinal DiNardo from Houston is is going with, I guess, by himself, a small delegation. I think Cardinal Supich is going as well to Rome to try to iron out some things, I guess, and discuss the situation. What do you expect to go on there? It's a good question, and uh, you're, you're correct. Um, the, the bishops, archbishops, cardinals from all the bishops' conferences are gathering in Rome this week for, for several days uh, of meetings, of gatherings. They'll have presentations. Uh, they're actually going to hear from victims of sexual abuse. They'll have small working groups. And um, this was a, a meeting, a gathering that was called by the Holy Father, because Pope Francis realizes what I think we all know, which is that this is a worldwide, a global problem. It's not limited here to the United States or to North America, but unfortunately the reality of, of sexual abuse of minors happens everywhere, and not, not just in the church, as we've talked about. It happens in families and schools and, and other places. So, But our Holy Father thought that there would be a, a benefit to all the bishops' conferences coming together to talk about this problem, to try to address it. I don't know what to expect as far as the outcome, if we're going to get a document, if we're going to get some direct guidelines, hopefully some instruction on what we're to do next, like, for example, here in the United States. After that, we'll, we'll, we'll see what comes out of this meeting. Our next bishop's meeting is going to be in June of this year. That'll be uh, in Baltimore. And so we'll probably follow up on that at that time uh, with any concrete action items that are the, uh, the result of this meeting. So the church sort of has policed themselves more or less for 2,000 years. To this day and age, it doesn't seem to be working, and that's why we're, we've gotten to the point and now, over the last two decades, or 15 years anyway, the laity have been told, if there's a problem, you got to notify law enforcement. Is that still happening in the church? I mean, are we doing that in the church hierarchy now, or is there still things covered up? Because obviously, we saw in the news just this past month with Cardinal McCarrick and that whole situation. Yeah, so I, I think you're correct, John. In, in the past, um, very often those who were victims of abuse by clergy or other members of the church were very hesitant to come forward because of the respect that the clergy had, that priests and bishops had. Many of them probably felt that they wouldn't be taken seriously or that they wouldn't be believed, uh, that they would be shamed. Um, so that maybe, unfortunately, prevented them from coming forward that's no longer the case. We now have procedures uh, in place for individuals to report whatever may have happened to them, if they have concerns about abuse or if they were abused, if they know somebody who was abused. We have different reporting mechanisms where they can call or write or go online, and they'll be taken seriously. And those, uh, those instances will be looked at and, if appropriate, investigated. So, yeah, I mean, we, I think we have come a long way. Does it mean that it's perfect? Does it mean that there's not more that we have to do? Of course not. The church is always in need of reform, and that's especially the case with this particular issue. So we know that, as I mentioned, uh, Cardinal McCarrick, who was the um, Archbishop Cardinal in Washington, D.C., the Holy Father in the, the Doctrine on the Faith Commission, I think it is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, 
restricted him to layization, he was laicized. What does that mean? You're correct. The uh, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, based on the investigation and the recommendation of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, have basically removed him, not only removed him from the priesthood, but removed him as a priest, meaning that he cannot present himself as a priest, he cannot wear any priestly clothing, whether that be clerical shirts or vestments, uh, he cannot publicly celebrate the sacraments as a priest. So he is uh, returned to the lay state. And uh, he's not referred to as Father McCarrick or Bishop McCarrick, Archbishop. Uh, he's referred now to as Mr. McCarrick. So he, he has that current state in his life, and this was imposed on him as a punishment for what he did, although certainly inadequate, those things, which can never repair the harm and the damage done to those who he victimized. But yet it's a, at least a small step to recognize that, um, that he acted inappropriately, that he acted sinfully, that he acted criminally, and that as a result, he no longer enjoys uh, the dignity uh, of the priesthood. Now you just mentioned criminally. Why isn't he seeing jail time? He's in a friary somewhere in Kansas. Yeah, and that, that's a, a good question. I, I think the best response would be that there's legal implications to criminally prosecuting somebody, particularly when the allegations were from many, many years ago. So there's statute things like the statute of limitations, which would come into play. Also, his age, he's currently 88 years old. Not that that should be a huge factor, but it's just a reality. Sure. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, perhaps he could be still criminally charged and prosecuted uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. Can a priest who commits these crimes be excommunicated? And if so, why wasn't Cardinal McCarrick excommunicated versus laicized? Laicization, what Cardinal McCarrick has gone through now or what's been imposed on him, is often referred to as the, the death penalty for priests. But in reality, for priests and, and for any other Catholic, excommunication is actually a more severe punishment because that does deny somebody the grace of the sacraments. They can no longer receive the Eucharist. They cannot go to confession. You know, they can't receive the graces from the sacraments uh, if you're excommunicated, if you're not in communion with the church. So this is a uh, why wasn't he excommunicated? That step wasn't taken. I mean, I'm hopeful that he has repented of what he's done, and he certainly would be in need of God's grace at this point in his life. Again, not that the damage can be repaired, but that somehow he can uh, can engage in prayer and penance to so be able to to at least pray for those who he has hurt so gravely. So it sounds like for excommunication, you willfully do this and are not repentant of or not turned your heart around to change what has been wronged. And the laicization is, this is what has happened. We're stripping you of this, and you're to lead the rest of your life in penance and prayer. Well, yeah, and as we've previously have talked about, excommunication is less of a penalty and more of a, an action uh, medicinal meant to right. bring about conversion of the person. In this case, Cardinal McCarrick, now, Mr. McCarrick was judged to be guilty, and so the, he re, what he received, laicization, removal, dismissal from the priesthood, defrocking, whatever word you want to use, that was a penalty that's been imposed on him. 
Whereas, again, excommunication, the hope is that that can at some point be lifted because the individual, the sinner, has repented of their sin. This action towards McCarrick that was taken by the Holy Father sends a clear message that no one, whether you be a priest, a deacon, a bishop, or a cardinal, is above the law. If there is an act which is criminal, which is sinful, inappropriate, abuse, that it will be dealt with and that you will receive a, a punishment for that. So I think that's one of the, uh, the effects of this is Pope Francis is sending a message that this will not be tolerated. You know, your listeners may or may not be aware that Cardinal McCarrick is really the highest ranking church official, if you want to use that word, to be dismissed from the priesthood, to be removed from the priesthood, to be defrocked. So this really sets an example and, and I think hopefully a precedent going forward. Question is coming out of Washington. Who knew what? Why did he get promoted? Because other people had to have known something. Yeah, I mean, if, if it can be shown that somebody was complicit in an action or knew about it, should have reported it, but did not, I would presume that they, they would also be uh, subject to investigation and proper punishment as well. You know, the actions that have been taken towards McCarrick really are something, but it doesn't bring an end to this because all those questions you mentioned still remain. How, how did this priest, who eventually became a bishop, an archbishop, and then a cardinal, how did he rise to the highest levels of the church? If there was knowledge that there were issues with him, if there were concerns, how did that happen? Who knew what and when, and why didn't they report it? Why wasn't there action taken against him if there were concerns? These are questions I can't answer for you, and I think it's an ongoing investigation. Sure. Some of these things, these scenarios that have played out in the news media are going to be discussed. In fact, I was looking at some of the speakers that are going to be addressing the bishops, and it's a pretty diverse group that's going to be there. Uh, everybody from cardinals to there's a, uh, a newspaper reporter, a news reporter that's going to be there that uh, has covered Rome and is going to be uh, speaking and addressing everything from crisis situations, how to how to be transparent in your diocese, to trying to be credible with things. So it looks like it's a wide variety of discussion points, but as you said, I think the laity as well as the bishops here in the United States want to see some concrete action taken. We would like to see it sooner than later. I join you in that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as a bishop, uh, and I, I think most of my brother bishops feel the same way. We want to move forward. You know, we want to put forth concrete actions that'll make a difference. We said earlier we wanted to begin that process or to do that at our November meeting, but we were unable to, to move forward to a point where we could vote on things. Hopefully that'll take place now at our June meeting, which will be held in Baltimore. So I join you and our listeners who are tired of hearing words, reading statements. They want some action. And believe me, when I come to your office, I do not like bringing up this topic, and I know that you don't like hearing me ask it, but I think the, the people of the Diocese of St. Petersburg appreciate your honesty and your openness in discussing it because we all want to do what's best for our church and, most importantly, for our children and, and their protection. So uh, thank you for your openness. Lent is right around the corner. 
I know uh, in the future I want to do a program, All Things Lent. We're going to be running out of time here in a moment. But I did want to ask you, before we hit Ash Wednesday, there's a celebration that takes place in certain cities, specifically New Orleans, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. They have some kind of religious background to them. Uh, What is that all about? (laughs) Sure, John. Uh, Well, the word Mardi Gras itself means Fat Tuesday. That's the translation of it. Um, And that takes place the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of the Lenten season. Um, This tradition of having a celebration, of having a party, of eating and drinking uh, started back in Europe centuries ago. And when the Europeans came here to the United States, the colonies were formed, those traditions came with them. And it was just a way of recognizing that we were entering into a season of fast, of penance, and of prayer. So it was an opportunity to engage in a little bit of revelry before this extended period of of fast and penance. And that's how really Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras got started. Have you ever been? I've not been to the one in um, in New Orleans, which, of course, here in the U.S. would be the, the largest, I believe. But I've been to some local ones. Yeah, I know Pensacola, I think, used to have one at one time, and, and Slidell and some other. Mobile. Mobile, Mobile right. has a, quite a large one as well. So, yeah, there's different celebrations that go on. Uh, you know, unfortunately, John, the, the religious significance of it uh, has really gotten kind of detached. Sure. And so today, it's for many people, it's just one more excuse to, to go out and party, to eat and drink to excess, and then continue to live that way. It's not really a time of conversion. Right. So. I know that back in my day, I was there on Fat Tuesday, and at midnight, the city shuts down. I mean, they at least keep that where Ash Wednesday starts at midnight, they bring out the fire hoses and clear the streets, and everybody goes back to their place and it's a different city the next day, at least for a short time anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, it's an interesting way of describing it. I've heard that as well in New Orleans. Right. That come midnight, everything stops. And that is a good recognition. You know, okay, the party's over. Right. You know, we had a good time. Good but, month of partying and now but, <laughs> it's time to move on to... Uh, now it's time to look at our lives and to prepare ourselves to celebrate Holy Week and, of course, Easter. So what is Ash Wednesday? Why does the church call it Ash Wednesday? Well, the obvious reason would be it's a day, first of all, that marks the beginning of Lent, as I said. And it's a day when the faithful come to church to receive ashes, usually on their forehead in the sign of a cross. Although in Europe, there's also the tradition of sprinkling of ashes on somebody's head, actually on the top of your head. That's another common practice there, but you don't really see that here in the United States. The ashes are what we call a sacramental. They're not a sacrament, but they're a sacramental in that they lead us deeper into our faith and into conversion. It's a sign. It's a reminder to us that we are dust and unto dust we shall return one day. It's not a holy day of obligation, but people treat it like that. Technically, is is not a holy day of obligation, but my experience as a priest and as a bishop is that it's a very meaningful day to the faithful, so much so that they take time during the day, whether it be in the morning or on their way home from work, maybe during their lunch hour, to come to church and to receive the ashes, again, as a reminder that our time in this world is finite and that we do need to look at our lives, that we need to undergo conversion, we need to ask for God's mercy and his forgiveness, and we have to get right with the Lord to get ready to celebrate Easter. 
Well, next time we record, I'd like to talk more about the entire Lenten season, its history, and um, what we as individuals can do to make our Lenten travel, our journey, much more meaningful in our lives. Before we close out, Bishop, and get to your blessing, I want to remind our listeners that you can hear this program again, as well as many others, by going to our diocesan website at dosp.org. And you can also subscribe to the podcast and have it sent directly to your smartphone. Just go to the App Store for your Android or Apple and key in a view from the top, or just simply search Bishop Gregory Parks, P-A-R-K-E-S. You can also follow Bishop Parks on his travels around the diocese by going to at Bishop Parks on Instagram, Twitter, and of course on Facebook. And always, if you have a question or a topic or a comment, you can simply email me at contact at myspiritfm.com. Bishop, I hope the foot continues to heal and that you're back on the uh, playing field sooner rather than later and know that everyone listening will keep you in their prayers. Please, could we close uh, with a prayer and blessing? Well, certainly, John, and thank you. Thank you to you and to our listeners for your prayers and for your support and know that they help very much. So let us pray. God, our Father, we ask for your mercy We ask for your healing upon ourselves and upon our church. We ask that your love, that your spirit may lead and guide us forward each and every day to do your will, to courageously live the gospel. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.